Welcome to Let's Talk About It, where we talk about the it's that no one wants to talk about. We are question-based and conversation-driven. Hi, my name is Olegia Nozier. Hi, my name is Paula Camacho. Thanks for hanging out with us two immigrants who have a whole lot to say and a whole lot to learn. Welcome to Courageous Conversations, episode two. For this week, we are joined by Lance Dixon, equity, diversity, justice, and inclusion consultant for Calgary Catholic School District. But this is just what he does, and he is very clear about how who we are give context for what we do. And so Lance also graciously gives us a glimpse into who he is, a descendant of African-American refugees who fled Jim Crow and settled in Africville, a descendant of Irish immigrants, a lover of storytelling, an educator, and so much more. Lance has spent years in equity education, actually doing the work of teaching about and fostering courageous conversations. And so who better than him to join us today? We were so incredibly honored to have him spend time with us on the podcast. And in the episode, Lance walks us through Glenn Singleton's framework for courageous conversations, including setting a conversation compass, the four conversation position approaches, and setting six conditions for good and courageous conversation. We even get into a profound discussion on postmodernism, relativism, and truth, and so much more. Friends, this is a conversation that you need to listen to twice. Take notes and share with every single person that you know. Thank you, Lance, for taking the time to share your heart for being vulnerable with us and for teaching us so much about this topic. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Let's Talk About It. My name is Paula. And my name is Olay Giroux. And today we are coming back to our conversation about courageous conversations. And today we actually have a guest with us. Uh, so, guys, this is Lance Dinson. I know him from, he actually used to teach at the school I went to. Uh, my family has known him for years. So, please introduce yourself. <laughs> All right. I'm happy to introduce myself. And it's so good to be here. Um, you, you just spoke of your family, Paula, and your family has a very special place in my heart. In fact, should, should we tell the audience? <laughs> yes. So, I mean, so close is our family that that we sw- <laughs> we swapped houses. You're, you're like, your family we is did. in the house where we lived. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and, you know, we really... We were so excited, you know, when we we really felt the call to leave Brooks and come to Calgary. That um, that it would be your family that would 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 come and 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 you know really make that home your home. Mm-hmm. It was such a sense of peace and just happiness, right? Because a home is a special place, and to know that the next family's coming in is as special as yours. That was that was pretty cool. For us. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm yeah. actually recording on one of the rooms that I think it used to be your daughter's room. <laughs> oh, no way. Oh, that's... <laughs> this is a funny story. Um, <laughs> I think your daughter had like a greenish color on her wall. And oh, we okay, asked, okay. Oh, should we change them? And they were really sad. And they were like, but we like the color. <laughs> and I think you told us that story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been my oldest daughter. She loves, yeah, loves greeny. Green and yellow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool. But yeah, that's how close our families are. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Mm. 
Thank you. Love it. Yes, we are mm. so glad to have you with us. And I guess to start off, we like to ask a serious question that is not all, right. all that serious. Okay. <laughs> so, Fire away. Um, so our question is, oh, this uh-huh. one may be, I don't know. It, the, our question is, if you could witness any event, past, oh, present, or even future, oh, what man. would it be? <laughs> this is a tough question, you know? Like, what? One event, past, present, or future. Okay, I'll, I'll tell you because it's, uh, and um, I'd love to be standing uh, at the feet of Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C., as Martin Luther King uttered his I Have a Dream speech. Mm. And I would be doing it standing next to my father who was there. Mm. Yeah. That's incredible. Mm. Yeah. Good yeah. answer. I don't think there are any bad answers, but that's an excellent yeah. answer. <laughs> oh, great choice. Yeah. Um, thank you mm. for answering our very serious mm-hmm. question. Um, You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> So as we move into the rest of our conversation, um, Lance, if you wouldn't Mm -hmm. mind just introducing yourself to our audience in terms of what are the most important things that they would need to know about Mm. you? Well, it's interesting, you know, that I guess my response to that very serious question, uh, you know, it speaks a little bit about who I am. So my, my father... Um, himself. So I, I identify as somebody of mixed racial background. Um, that's very important, um, um, uh, has become very important to me and obviously to the work I do now um, as, uh, as uh, racial justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion consultant for Calgary Catholic School District. But, um, but yeah, no, my, my dad um, is, uh, was, was born in Canada in the East Coast. Um, his uh, father arrived just as an infant uh, with his, uh, well, as much as we know, the story, as you can understand, is, uh, um, is, is quite vague on how they actually arrived here. But they were definitely refugees from, from the states fleeing the Jim Crow uh, uh, segregation laws and um, and and Canada, like so many African Americans, was that promised land, um, mm. and uh, so they made their way here, uh, settled in Africville, just north of Halifax, uh, just a a small community of of black refugees and um, and 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 settlers that. Um, really found community uh, there um, outside on the edge of, of Halifax where there was still segregation. As you can imagine, mm-hmm. Canada wasn't all the promised land that uh, mm. they had hoped it to be. But um, but there he was, uh, and my father ended up um, uh, being born. Actually, let, let, me, let me tell you the, the, the connection. So he was born in St. John, New Brunswick, in a three-room house, one of 13 brothers and sisters, uh, George Dixon was my grandfather, and he served uh, in the number two black battalion in World War I uh, mm-hmm. for the Canadian Armed Forces, the only black battalion ever assembled uh, in the history of Canada. Mm-hmm. And they actually were not permitted to carry weapons. So the, uh, the white officers... Um, didn't feel that they had the competency uh, or the trust to go into battle with the white soldiers. So they were sent ahead of the other battalions 
uh, as the construction crew to build the bridges and the trenches that the white soldiers would occupy. And um, it's, a, it's a chapter in Canadian history that has yet to be told fully. Uh, I'm actually uh, writing a book about it uh, currently. Uh, and, uh, um, and yeah, you know, that, that is, um, that's a lot of who I am. Um, my, mm-hmm. my brother, also uh, three years younger than me, um, has really taken that call. He has for, oh, some years now, uh, much more than me, really been intentional about telling the stories of, of black Canadians through, um, through drama, theater. He's a professional playwright. Mm. And uh, currently in Stratford Festival, uh, both he and I are uh, writing uh, Freedom Cabaret 2.0. We did that in the summer. It was well-received. Mm. And... Um, and it's really telling the story of freedom and perseverance uh, through the history of black music. And um, I'm not a musician, uh, mm-hmm. so that part I leave to him. But I love <laughs> the story um, behind all things, mm. and including how music speaks into the story of our lives. So. So yeah, that's a lot about me. My mother, uh, uh, we don't know much about her story because uh, she was adopted into a family uh, again in the East Coast um, where she met my father eventually. But as much as she knows, uh, her roots are Irish. So there's my mixed racial heritage, Irish, black Canadian. Um, but um, her grandfather was also uh, an Australian Jew um, who uh, came as an orphan to to Canada. So, mm. um, so yeah, that's kind of the tapestry of my life in a nutshell. Um, but I currently live, as I mentioned, in Calgary and uh, and serve with the school district. I was a pastor uh, in a previous lifetime, but always had a passion for education and. Uh, and the opportunity to teach came that brought me to Brooks, Alberta. I was Yay. in Toronto for 25 years. And what a change. Right? Yeah, that was crazy. Yeah. So grew up in uh, early childhood was Detroit, uh, Michigan, uh, mm. where my dad started his pastoral ministry uh, in, a, in a church, historic black uh, Episcopalian church called St. Matthew, St. Joseph, the end of the Underground Railroad. So uh Eventually up to four one Toronto and now to well Brooks, Alberta <laughs> and now to Calgary. Wow. wow. Thank you so mm-hmm. much for mm. sharing that piece of your story and all of the ways that multiple other people's stories mm. connect to make yours, I think is really beautiful. Mm. And um I think it really actually sets such a beautiful mm. scaffolding for the things that we want to talk about today in terms of courageous conversations, because I Mm. think those, uh, the idea of courageous conversations has been pushed more into, I guess, mainstream media in terms of the happenings Mm. of the past, I guess, two Mm -hmm. years now of things that have been going on around the world and the ways that people are trying to, Mm. you know, bridge difficult conversations or scary conversations. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I want to start by saying thank you Mm -hmm. for opening the floor that way by sharing that piece of your story. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I guess our first question for you then jumping off of that would be, how would you define a courageous conversation? Mm -hmm. You know, how do we have them? Who's responsible for starting them? What are some of your ideas Mm -hmm. on that topic? Um, Yeah, well, you know, I think in its simplest form, a courageous conversation is any conversation where we're where we're willing to step out of our comfort zone 
be ready to both speak and listen with an open heart and mind. That, that in its simplest uh, definition is what a courageous conversation is. Um, if, if you were to ask me what that might look like in my work around racial equity, um, and um, um, we, we've adopted the, the protocol and conditions that were developed by an equity education consultant in the U.S. named Glenn Singleton. And he shared in his books... Uh, called Courageous Conversations About Race, um, the the parameters that he felt were necessary for these these important discussions, particularly in an educational setting, about race as a factor in student achievement. And so we really try to approach it from a perspective of a professional obligation to be engaged. However, we have found that the, the principles, the protocol, work in any setting, and even those who aren't necessarily wanting to engage. And so that's why, uh, for me, um, you, you, you see the, the principles and, uh, and the protocol uh, reflected in a lot of different kind of models um, of, uh, of prejudice reduction work. Um, and, uh, and so from my previous experience in community organizing and, and, and focusing on prejudice reduction in Toronto, uh, uh, to me, it just it, it immediately resonated with me. And, and I'll share with you a little bit about how we do courageous conversation. The first thing about courageous conversation uh, is that we need to agree on how we're going to talk to each other. And that, that's really important. You know, before you get into the conversation, how, how are we going to do this with one another? So we we um, we put forward four agreements. Uh, the first one is is sounds like an obvious one, but we need to be explicit about our intentions, and that is first to stay engaged, stay engaged, um, and that leads immediately to the second one is because we are going to experience discomfort. Mm. And we're okay with that. That's the second agreement. We are okay with this being uncomfortable. It doesn't mean it's easy, but we agree. That's part of how we're going to do this together. Mm -hmm. Because sequentially going to the third agreement, we're going to speak our truth. <laughs> We're going to say what we need to say. And I'm going to come back to that, whether we probably come up later in the conversation, why that's so critical. And because we need to unpack that, that, um, that agreement. Uh, because a lot of people have different conceptions about truth and what we're really talking about when we talk about speaking our truth. So, so mm. we, we sometimes need to have a conversation around that before we can move to the fourth agreement, and that is that we're going to expect and accept non-closure. And what we mean by that is we understand, looping back to the first agreement, that this isn't all going to be resolved in one conversation. I may have to walk away and really reflect on what has been shared. And as a, the other person engaged in the conversation, I give that permission. I'm okay with you walking away for a while if you need to do that. Mm. Uh, and it's not about win or lose. It's about the journey. And so we give ourselves that, that space of grace within the conversation mm -hmm. to, um, to, to step away, think about it, 
but recognizing that our very first agreement is that we're going to stay engaged, which means that we're committing to come back mm-hmm. and and continue this conversation where, wherever we need to, you know, whether you know wherever we left it off, or 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 maybe we did some more thinking, we want to you know move forward, whatever the case may be, but we know we're going to come back to this um, because ultimately it's about those relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the thing about all this. Um, these four things that you mentioned is that they built upon each other in a way, right? Because, mm. like, mm. I feel like, okay, like, let's say a scenario where you had an encounter with somebody and you know, like, something upset them and you know maybe you were in the wrong or whatever and you want to fit things. So you want to get out of your comfort zone and go out of your way and have this, this courageous conversation, this, courage, this conversation that is going to feel awkward in a way. Mm-hmm. But you want it, as, as humans, I think we, we want to just fix it right away and find a solution and and walk away from that being everything just being fine. Mm-hmm. And you, I think everything that you just say kind of challenged that perspective mm-hmm. too because it's like, okay, but like you have to be okay with not having closure, with maybe not mm-hmm. being that, that one conversation mm-hmm. alone, but having a multiple series of conversations that will lead mm-hmm. to a different... Um, perspective or whatever that is so i love that because like it just right from the get-go is <laughs> it's challenging our perspective i think and our cultural way of looking at things mm-hmm. well paulo you yeah you're absolutely right and it speaks to the second component of singleton's model and and, and that's called the conversation compass and the conversation compass is what we bring with us into the conversation that reminds us of the aim. Where are we going in this conversation? What's our intention? And we use that word a lot mm. um, as, as a way to really be conscious of what is our objective mm. in what we're doing right now in this conversation. So mm. the conversation compass, and, and, and this is where I really took... Uh, Singleton's um, concept of a conversation compass and really examined it in um, in the lens of a faith context in terms of our Christian faith mm-hmm. because um, Singleton lays out four positions that we generally start with in these conversations, in these difficult conversations. One is an intellectual position. The other one is an emotional position. The other one's an, a moral position. And then the other one is what he calls re- relational position. And, and we need to think of that in terms of our instinct, going back, Paula, to what you said, to fix something, mm. right? And, and so we need to stop and think about, actually, what is our relationship right now mm. to this person? Because sometimes our desire to fix the problem misses the person. Right, mm-hmm. and so what he says is we need to be conscious of how we're starting in this conversation. What what I speak about is not the starting point of the conversation, but where do we aim to go together through this conversation? I related the the Christian virtues to each of these four kind of positions. So you have courage uh, related to the moral. Uh, you have the prudence the you know the virtue of prudence to really be wise in how we're speaking related to the intellectual uh, we also have um, 
that of temperance related to the emotional, right? So, you know, when, when people get into conversations about race, man, it is so hard to keep our emotions mm-hmm. out, outside of it. Because for many of us, we're talking about real hurt and pain that we've experienced in our lives, right? And if not, our lives directly in our family or people close to us. And it, it's really difficult to just put those aside when we're engaged in a person who intellectually is minimizing the issue or trying to rationalize a system that has oppressed people for generations. So what do I need to do? I need to recognize that my aim is not to win this moment. Mm. My aim is not to, um, not to take out my anger and bitterness against this person. My aim is to see both of us move to a place where we hear one another Mm -hmm. and we can begin to be more human with each other in this this dialogue, in this conversation. And uh, like the relational, you know, like what about the virtue of love, right? How does that inform and shape Mm -hmm. our direction in this conversation? If I'm coming in, with my aim to be more, to demonstrate a greater love for this person, then, and if that person's agreeing to do the same, mm. you see you, you see what I'm saying here? It's It takes us in a completely different direction than the polemics of our current social debate around race. I really am impacted by that idea of what is the end Mm -hmm. point? Like, where are we trying to go together? Because I think then by shifting the focus from where we're both starting on opposite sides or maybe not even in the same room, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and by shifting that focus to the idea of, okay, we are both coming from where we're coming from, but we are trying to go in a particular direction. Mm -hmm. It then shifts the... I don't know what the word is, but the I guess the the tension of me against mm-hmm. you into into a more directional approach of okay, we're going mm-hmm. here. What are we trying to get out of the direction that we are now mm-hmm. going? And um and then you're kind of able to now think about okay, where is the other person coming mm-hmm. from? Are they coming from that intellectual right. perspective? Are they coming from the yep. relational? Are they coming from the moral? Are they coming from the emotional? Yep. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I mm. really, I'm really impacted by that mm. idea. Yeah, and sometimes we need to be explicit about that. I mm-hmm. mean, if the person's just not getting it, we need to pause and we need to say, okay, let's let's talk about where we want to go in this conversation. It's a, it's amazing how much that disarms mm. the other person because they assume usually if a person does is is not entering the conversation already consciously with that intent, it's because they are used to speaking out of privilege and power. Mm. And now we've reframed the conversation that power is irrelevant in this moment Mm. to me because I'm not about win or lose. I'm not going to afford you the opportunity to walk away to say you've won anything Mm. because what I'm about, my intention, is to see how we we can become more human in in, in in this course of dialogue together. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, the you know the person disarmed. Like, well, okay, <laughs> so where does that leave me? Well, I don't know. I mean, you 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 also 
can walk away and think about it. But that's what I'm doing in this conversation. So, you know, you can you can choose to join me or not. And now I have the power <laughs> in this moment, in the sense of being empowered to speak to what liberates me and allows me to become free from this this polemic and this 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 ideology that really is already uh, inequitable in terms of in terms of the placement of where the voices are, right? Because mm-hmm. that, that's that's where society there is already people who have power and privilege who are speaking into this conversation, and they can shut it down and dismiss it just by walking away and say I won't, I won. But I'm going to say, well, mm-hmm. yeah, but by your terms, you haven't won. Nobody has won. Mm. Right. Yeah. No. That's that's so good. I guess then, mm. and I, I think you already kind of dive into it. Um, but what are some key aspects of a good or bad courageous conversation? Yeah. I guess like, is there anything mm-hmm. imp- like a, an example you could probably give us maybe of a conversation that a courageous conversation that went mm. well for you and maybe one that didn't go so mm. well and what are some aspects of it that you will highlight? Well, you know, I, I, it's, it's just kind of reiterating, I think what I, I just shared in that um, conversations don't, that don't go well are conversations where I have neglected to be explicit about my intentions, um, that I have uh, wrongly assumed the person knew what I was about, mm. or I didn't take the time to really listen and to hear and to elicit from the person what they were truly about. So I didn't do that work. Mm. And um, that's when things don't go well. Because what happens is, um, in that moment, what I am doing is that I actually am caught up in my own biases. I am my own, that script in, the, in my head mm. that is really controlling the dialogue rather than the dialogue controlling the process. Mm-hmm. You, you see what I'm saying? So those are when the times don't go well. And and I can also, when I haven't done that, that similar work of checking my position mm-hmm. at the start of the conversation, did I check my emotions? Was I attentive to where I was at with regards to my own uh, feeling in the moment, and it does change, right? Depending, because it's this is all about positionality. Like who I'm engaging with may elicit different emotions for me than somebody else, or conversely, I'm going into a conversation, um, not aware of the emotions that that person is bringing in, and I'm thinking this is just an intellectual debate mm-hmm. or or thing, and I'm not. Again, I'm I'm. That script in my head is like, yeah, yeah, you know, well, well, yeah, no, I don't agree with that or, or whatever. And, and what I realized that actually I have power in this moment right now mm-hmm. that I need to check and be explicit about. So that, that's when conversations don't go well, when we're not, when we're not straight up and, and, and real, like, what are we doing here? Okay. And so that's work that, that, you know, we realize we need to do with educators. We can't assume educators are competent in having a conversation about, particularly about race. So, so we need to always take the time to really slow down and talk about the agreements and say, are, are we, are we with each other on this? Do we need to take time to think about the agreements before we come back? You know, cause that's, that's the thing. When things really go well is when we have, and gotten to a place where we can actually um, 
practice the conditions of a courageous conversation. And Singleton identifies six of them. Okay. Now, the one we did right at the beginning of this conversation, and that is, first of all, locate ourselves in the story, in the context. So mm -hmm. sharing who we are, our personal stories, is absolutely essential. So I'm having a conversation when people are, are actually talking about who they are, not what they do, not what they think, mm -hmm. but who they are, because who we are, all those, you know, our ancestors shape our sense of self, right? So now we're being real. I can appreciate who you are. I'm learning something about you and your story. So when we're having conversations about who we are, then we're, we're into a courageous conversation. Um, when we can talk about our personal experiences of racism, we're having a courageous conversation, right? Because now people are, are, are at a place where they're feeling vulnerable. And it's like, wow, okay, okay, now, now, we're, now we're talking. When we get to a place of being able to bring a critical perspective to what somebody has shared, we know we're having a courageous conversation. When, again, when we can come back and find ourselves uh, reaffirming the parameters and affirming that, that we need to stay engaged and, and yes, yeah, speak your truth and yes, I'm okay with this discomfort. When we're at that place, that's the fourth condition of, of affirming the parameters. That means that we're willing to go deeper, okay? And then when we're talking about race itself, not our experience of race, but race itself as a social construct, then we're having a courageous conversation, okay? And finally, and here's the sixth condition, when we're at a place in conversation with somebody where we're talking about whiteness, when we're, now we're talking real because now we're getting down to the core cultural assumptions of what... Um, uh, of what supports systemic racism uh, at, at its foundation, N then we know we're having a courageous conversation because that means somebody on the other side of the conversation mm -hmm. is still engaged. And when we, we're at that level, we know that we're, we can move some things here. Mm -hmm. so I, I don't know if that kind of makes sense in terms of those, you know, that, the, but the content is the measurement that, that, helps us see the extent to which we're having these courageous conversations. It brings me to the yeah. question now about truth, actually, because that what determines the content mm. is where each person is coming from in perspective and from their perspective of speaking mm -hmm. their truth. So I would love to hear mm -hmm. what you have to say about it, um, especially in relation to mm -hmm. how you go about seeking truth when it could be argued that everybody is coming from their own mm -hmm. different version of what they are um, seeing as the truth of that moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's such a great question. And, and, um, uh, forgive me. Cause I, you know, I, I, I think about that question and there's, there, there's, it, there's two complex layers uh, for me. And so I'll, I'll just do my best to unpack them as sort of succinctly as I can. Um, but yeah, let, let me say this. First of all, there's, I, I look at that question from both a philosophical perspective and a spiritual perspective. Um, and let me just talk about the, the philosophical just, just for a moment, because I, what I try to do and th this is a learned pattern, right? Like I've come to try to examine all narratives 
from a, an anti-oppression lens. Okay. Um, in, in other words, what is the tension in this evolution of thought? All right. What, what is motivating the shift in how people think and act in history? In this, in this particular time or place. And, and in this case, with regards to this question of, of how do we seek truth when everybody's got their own different version of it, you know, I, mm-hmm. I look at the postmodern movement, which, which really is defined largely by the idea of relativism, which is what you're talking about, um, as being a collective of voices who were tired of being marginalized in the cultural and political narratives throughout modernity. All right. So we came into the 20th century with all sorts of cultural and political assumptions about how the world ought to be structured based on certain worldviews, modern worldviews. But that narrative was written by people in places of privilege and power who wanted that hegemony of thought. Okay, so they they weren't that was the whole point of modernity, by the way, is really the 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 solidifying of a certain worldview. So. We see this most uh, clearly in the feminist movement in the 20th century, uh, in Western society. Um, and I just speak descriptively. I'm not, you know, saying yes or no to feminism. I'm just speaking in terms of how this plays out in terms of the, um, in terms of this the shift to relativism. Okay, um, you see, in an attempt to validate the voices of women in society, there was a also a move, and not just not just the the the, the women's uh, liberation movement, but there was a move to assert all truth being relative to one's experience. Okay, Do you, so this this created, and here's here's the the difficulty. This created what we call a moral relativism, and here's why: because now people could say. Because there's no absolute truth, no one outside of my experience can tell me how my life is good or bad. You see how that? Okay. Because truth is the authority by which we determine our reality. Mm-hmm. All right. So this brings me to the spiritual perspective. I bring to the question, how do I go about seeking truth? Because while I deeply sympathize with marginalized voices in society. The shift from my perspective to relativism ultimately does not serve the cause. And here's why. Ironically, we are left with no absolute truth that holds oppressive voices morally accountable for their actions. Do you see that? Because if relativism is true for some, it is true for all. And there's the irony of relativism, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Okay? So if I'm going to assert that truth is relative to my experiences, I have to then hold that that is true for the other person who claims the same. Mm-hmm. So somebody who is in a place of power and privilege can easily rationalize based on their own experience mm-hmm. and substantiate it by their understanding of what truth is. So are you with me so far? Yes, yes, we okay. are. Yeah. All right. So th- this is the thing. Instead, my spiritual perspective looks at truth not as an abstract concept, which modernity basically created it to be. 
but a relational reality that holds us accountable to the pursuit of truth for the common good. I don't understand truth outside of my relationship, and I already posit a value of good being the ultimate aim of truth. And if that's so, then I need a truth that is transcendent of all of our experiences. And that's why I am a follower of the teaching of Jesus, by the way, who, when often questioned about the moral truth of people's actions, always pointed to the relationship between us as that which determined what is good and true for life. As he famously quoted in the Gospel of John, I am the way, the truth, the life. It was not an abstract notion for Jesus. It was deeply relational. And Christ understood himself to be the incarnate God who is the creator of all beings and therefore in all beings. And so Christ could not speak of himself apart from his relationship with others. You, you, you see that movement that Jesus did, right? So when he says, I am the way, the truth of the life, he is looking at the same divine truth within each of us. And so therefore, he cannot speak of truth apart from his relationship with you and I. And that is how, from again, from a, pure, a spiritual perspective, and as a follower of Jesus, I also approach this question, how do I seek truth? How do I do it? Well, I acknowledge truth is a transcendent reality that can only be realized in the pursuit of what brings the good in my relationship with others. So you may have different perspectives about the world and what is right and what is true, but that does not absolve us from striving together to find what ultimately is right and true for all of us who live together on this one planet. So as long as we acknowledge that we are bound together as one humanity, we must always strive to know truth between us. So we get back to the agreements, courageous conversations, speak your truth. What we are saying to people is you have something to bring to the conversation that's going to help me understand the deeper reality that we all share together. I don't have all the pieces to this puzzle. You have a vital piece. You have a vital piece. We all bring to the collective humanity a perspective that allows us to see the transcendent whole of what truly makes us human. Mm. Does, that, does that make sense to, to you? I mean, mm -hmm. like, unfortunately, I haven't found a way to speak about truth simply. Because... <laughs> Because now we're getting to the deep stuff, right? Truth is about what is ultimate in our reality. Paul Tillich, the great theologian, Protestant theologian, turned the century, called, had a name for God. He called God the ground of all truth. Mm. I love that, right? Wow. I'm, I'm going to be listening to this mm. and writing notes and thinking about it. Mm -hmm. um, and I know all of you listening will be as well, because uh, to me, one of my, I guess, deepest passions about this life is creating healthy relationship and being in a space where 
I'm creating a comfortable place for another human being. Hmm. And so remembering to bring it back, those these big ideas, I think, yes, they're complex, but when brought hmm. back down to earth in terms of the question of, but what is what is that mm-hmm. relational space? What is that space between us? I think it helps to make things simpler in a mm-hmm. way because now again, we're coming back down to the where are we trying to go together? Mm-hmm. And I think another thing um, that kind of I will highlight of what you just said is that idea of making it clear and plain like what you have to say matters, what you have to say matters. Like everybody mm-hmm. plays a mm-hmm. role. Yep, that's it. And everybody like has something important, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think then going back to the whole idea of courageous conversations, I think in a way is like I, I see this whole idea of courageous conversations in a way as like a domino effect. Like when you start a courageous conversation, you inspire others to have more courageous conversations. And I think that's so vital and so crucial in the kind of society we live in these days when we just act and pretend like everything is fine and we hide things underneath the rug um Mm. but then when when yeah when you step out of your comfort zone and you speak your truth Mm. then you are allowing others to be encouraged by by what you're doing and Mm -hmm. eventually Mm -hmm. it could turn to be somebody else's courageous conversations yes Yes. and so on Mm -hmm. and I might say this is what the two of you have been doing for the past year. (laughs) You've been creating the space for people to feel okay about being in the conversation and not having to have all the answers, but understanding we all have a voice. We, you know, your, your, your fascination with people's questions, right? And is, is that invitation for them to speak their truth? Because you recognize in their story, there is something about humanity that you have yet to learn. And that's going to enrich you in the process. Like, who would not want to have conversations with people, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. like when you think about it, it's crazy. Like, I'm only going to benefit from this. How come I don't want to have a conversation with you? And so, And so you're really... You're, you're exemplifying that, that human spirit to to know each other mm. so that together we can be fully known. That's powerful. Yeah. So. Mm. And something that just came to mind, too, in relation to what you were saying was, I think from a personal perspective, what sometimes prevents me from wanting to step into a into a conversation and be courageous about it is that fear of discomfort it may not even be the actual discomfort of having the conversation Mm -hmm. it may be oh but what if i go in and Mm -hmm. i say this incorrectly Mm -hmm. or what if i go in and i am made now to feel uncomfortable and so i think something that has kind of stuck with me from what you've said in terms of you know, setting those parameters, recognizing that everybody has something to bring to the table and then negotiating that space together then helps the uh, the discomfort and the knowledge that, OK, this may not be resolved in this first step. Um, it then helps that to feel a little bit less daunting mm-hmm. and, you know, being able to walk into it. after. That's that. right. Yeah, that's right. You, you, you got it. You know, we're we're creating space for grace. Uh, to grow, right? You know, and that's that's so vital. We we don't offer grace in mm. our 
in our public discourse. Uh, we, we don't even we don't even provide an opportunity for somebody to be right or wrong. Um, our only purpose is to is to prove that um, that we've already won. I, I mean that's that's that we we've we've prepared our conversation that way. We end the conversation that way, mm. and um, and and we have to let go of that power dynamic because that's what's most threatening. That's what creates the fear for people to engage in the conversation because they're afraid to lose and not just lose an intellectual argument, but to lose some of their own emotional well-being in the process. I'm going to get beat down in this conversation. And that's frightening for people. And rightly so, right? Like who wants to get beat down in a conversation? Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. So we don't go there. So yeah, we need to be explicit about those parameters and and be clear on what we're agreeing and where are we going with this? Because otherwise people's assumptions and prejudices are are just going to take over. They're going to assume mm. that this is all about win or lose right now, right? Yeah. And and most compassionate people don't want to get into that conversation and ironically they're the very people that we need in the conversation. Mhm. Really, you know, so is that kind of catch twenty two, right? When, and we just leave it for the big dogs. Oh yeah, you know, the ones who are like to tear each other up. You know, last best, you know, mm-hmm. last man standing. That's what this is going to be, and that's what our culture wars are all about. Mm-hmm. That's why we call them wars. We're we're just fighting for supremacy in our in our culture today, and that is that that polemic. There is no redemption in that. There will not be a winner. It'll just be losers. Yeah. So so this is prophetic work, you know, of choosing not to engage in the culture wars and choosing instead to reframe the conversation so that it is a redemptive moment in our, our social dialogue. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for, for laying that out so eloquently because mm. I agree with you i think at the end of the day if we're just attacking each other nobody wins and there's always there's a powerful thing to be learned in the back and Mm -hmm. forth um that we do together Mm -hmm. and when one person leaves the conversation feeling a victor and the other person leaves the conversation um feeling Mm -hmm. oppressed or feeling Mm -hmm. made belittled or whatever the word is then we have a fissure that is probably bigger than when it started Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> thank you so much, Lance, for being part of this conversation. And I, like Kalei said, I think I'm going to go back <laughs> and take some notes on my own. And yeah, I I love it. It's, it's, it's important. And I, I felt like it was important for us to have this uh, conversation as the holidays are approaching. And mm. the social tension that mm. we live in these days and so much going on that it feels like even hard to speak mm-hmm. to our own families and relatives and people who we love and care for. Um, but thank you so much. Well, th- thank you. I mean, we would not be having this conversation unless you reached out and, and um, had mm. the conviction in your own heart that these conversations are needed and all the effort that you're making and, and the time and the energy you know, you're spending. I, I hope that you, <laughs> you believe and and sometimes this is an act of hope because we don't know the the seeds that we've planted in the work that we do here. 
you, you don't know who's listened in the past or even in this moment uh, that we're sharing now. Mm. Uh, but we continue to do this work with hope that every conversation opens the possibility for a different way of seeing one another, of seeing our humanity. And you're doing that with dedication. So thank you. And uh, this, this to me was just pure joy uh, being here. So, uh, so if I ever have opportunity to come again, I'm, I'm, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to take you up on it and uh, <laughs> uh, I won't hesitate because uh, I really love what you're doing. Thank you so much. We we'll would love to have you as many times as possible. <laughs> right, Leisure? <laughs> we, we would. I guess before we finally completely close out, we would like to ask uh, you, Lance, mm -hmm. what your last minute moment will be or what your last minute message would be for everybody listening mm. today, whether it's something we've already talked about throughout the episode or whether it's something that comes to mind now. Mm. Um, we just like to give all of our guests that opportunity. And so we would like to give you that opportunity now too, as we close the episode. Mm. As hard as it is, give people the grace to to see the conversation for what it truly is. Jesus uttered probably the hardest words for our human society. Love your enemies. And that's what a courageous conversation is all about. It's about choosing love and choosing our common humanity of being resilient in creating the spaces for dialogue to happen. And people need the grace to see the truth of what we're doing. So keep on the work. Profound. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. And thank you listeners for joining mm -hmm. us for this time that we spent with Lance. And we will catch you in our next episode. Adios, amigos. Wow. What a joy has been to be part of this conversation. Lance. Once again, thank you so much for joining us today. What a tremendous blessing it was to have you share your wisdom with our audience. Guys, we hope that as we go into the holidays and into the new year, really, you put to good use all of the elements to a courageous conversation that Lance has so nicely laid out for us. Now, go out there and embrace one another to get out of your comfort zone. And like Lance said, be ready to both speak and listen with an open heart and an open mind. Till next time. This is Oledra Nozier. This is Bona Camacho. And we're signing out for Let's Talk About It, whatever it is. If you would like to stay in contact with us, you can visit our website at www.letstalkaboutitpod.com or send us a quick email at host at letstalkaboutitpod.com. We're also on all social platforms, on Facebook and Instagram at the Let's Talk About It Pod and on Twitter at the capital L T A lowercase I T pod. We'll talk to you soon. Bye for now. Bye.